As the world begins to emerge from the cave of the 21st century and opens its eyes onto the suffering from centuries of injustice and the bastardization of what it means to be free, the new Nomos podcast is a call. A call for a new beginning. A call for the new men and the new women that yearn to be truly free. A call for us to fulfill our destiny. A call for a new Nomos on the earth. Welcome to the New Nomos Podcast. I'm Abdallah Dutton, inviting you to join me on this journey of discovery to define what the New Nomos is and what we need to get there. So I've been asked a number of times to include a woman's perspective on this journey. So in this episode, I'm interviewing Dr. Humaira Shahid, a journalist, human rights activist, and a member of parliament twice elected into the Provincial Assembly of the Punjab in Pakistan. During her time as a member of parliament, she fought against violent customary practices, forced marriages, acid crimes and the rights of women among other issues and she was the first parliamentarian of the provincial assembly of the punjab to pass a law as a private member she has written this story in her book devotion and defiance among other things dr humaira is particularly passionate about economic empowerment for women and hosts an online course called women and power where she aims to set the inner life of her students into motion in order to break away from a frightened and broken inner life and reclaim natural-born freedom and autonomy. And part of that course is the link between sexuality and spirituality. So, without much further ado, I present to you episode 15, The Collaborative Couple, Sexuality and Spirituality. My subject is so delicate, Abdullah. You know, you just phrase it a little ambiguously or something, and there's a kind of a huge attack. You know, what is she saying? Why is she saying? I mean, making a political uh, speech or a political debate, it's so much easier than this because you are touching the nerves of the people and you just have to be like very slow, subtle, and very precise. And that's why I think I always feel um, a bit about this subject of sexuality and spirituality and, you know, how it impacts people and people have a lot of preconceived notions and, you know, it just uh, takes them out of their comfort zone. You know, you're trying to dismantle something that they built a foundation upon. So it's quite like, you know, challenging at times. Where did this subject, the idea of spirituality and sexuality, where did your journey with this kind of theme begin? Um, <clears throat> well, it's a very interesting question because it's such an important part of my life. My life has been as a member of parliament and as a journalist, it has been preoccupied with violence against women, human rights. And somehow Allah brought me into the parliament. And I was very reluctant because, you know, I come from a family and a country where politicians are not respected. And I remember 
when I got elected to the parliament and I said, Allah, what is that I have to do? Why am I here? And I, I prayed night after night and I said to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, give me the work that nobody wants to do. Give me the work that pleases you the most. I remember I was working on um, Wani, which is a customary practice where women are bartered as trade or compensation for crimes. And I was very passionate about acid attacks and I wanted it to become a um, punitive and there should be regulatory measures to control the crime. But one of the things that just landed in was the question of usury. It was almost that Allah dropped the issue on my lap because I, I didn't have that kind of uh, understanding of usury or predatory money lenders and what they do. So it all started with, you know, I want to look into this issue. And I remember uh, at that time I was uh, working with the newspaper and I posted an ad which uh, invited all the effectees of money lending to approach me. Oh, wow. So I had like 700 families walking to my office and other than the letters and uh, telephone calls that I received, and I just realized usury and money lending was one of the biggest source of um, pain and extortionism and exploitation of people. People were selling kidneys to pay back uh, compound loans. Uh, women were forced into marriages so that their fathers or their families were indebted to these uh, predatory moneylenders, and this is what they wanted. Properties were taken over, and I just realized that village after village, town after town were under these moneylenders. It was like a mafia, and this mafia was very closely connected to weapons, drugs, prostitution, and gambling. And I just couldn't close my eyes to what I had discovered. So it took me uh, quite a time to get the technicalities and to learn how to legislate, how to bring a new bill to the House. And that's under a whole another story, you know, and I've written a book about it. When you want to legislate on something which uh, affects the economy or challenges the fiscal system of your province, how difficult it is. So anyway, um, I ended up moving a bill against private money lenders in Punjab Assembly. And I was looking at um, complete abolishing of private money lending that is based on interest. And this took me back to pre-partition laws, which allowed these money lenders. It just opened a whole new avenue for me where I realized how systematically usury money lending, interest-based lending had been weaved into the system of Pakistan. And I realized it was like a bombshell because the moment I put that bill in the house, I started getting uh, threats. I started getting warnings. I was asked to take it back. I was asked not to touch issues that don't relate to me. And the more they did that to me, the more my heart was convinced that this is why Allah has brought me here. And, um, and so this was my life. And, and Alhamdulillah, that bill took a lot of struggle, but it got passed. But then externally, you know, all these things were happening. But internally, I was so, I had so many fears, fear of this, fear of that. You know, I, I, I can't um, come out of my own prisons. I realized that I had an amazing intuition in a lot of things. But somehow there are certain obstacles that I just don't know how to overcome. 
And then when I got married to Sheikh Umar, and I think one of the things that happened to me was when Sheikh Umar just put all my fears in front of me and I realized, oh my goodness, where have I been caught? And it, it was years that took me to overcome those fears, to understand so many things that I'd indoctrinated over the years, so many things that I bought, you know, the way I understand feminism, the way I understand what a woman is. And there's so many things that I have to dismantle about myself. I have fears. I have fear of fears. I'm afraid of almost everything, you know. And, uh, and there was this very strong desire to, you know, come out of it. Like, I just can't take it anymore. So it was an amazing external life full of commotion and movement and action. So Sheikh Omar just puts me into the stillness and makes me look inward. And that's when things started unfolding. And, and these are things that you can't rationalize. You can't structure them into language. They're not even linguistic, you know, and they can't be explained linguistically. They're they're so intuitive. They're part of your inner reality. And, and then as I worked on myself, and of course, uh, your desire to be free of all these things is crucial to that. And then intuitively you understand why I would frame a certain thing like this. Why do I think um, this issue to be like this? And I just realized we all have been indoctrinated by our times, by our media, by the theories. I mean, despite saying, you know, I don't believe in humanism or liberalism or capitalism, we are so much you know, a part of it, and we don't even realize, you know, and the whole idea of living in your head, the challenge is to um, come out of this rational way of thinking and believing that this is the only way of interpreting reality, yourself, your relationship to God, and how you relate to the world. So in dismantling my own self and discovering, you know, deep within me, who I truly was, you know, it didn't happen instantaneously. It was like, you know, one wheel goes away and one wheel goes away. And then you take off another cover and you take off another cover. So that kind of gave me an intuitive way of teaching to other women. Now I know exactly, you know, what is the process, which stage they are, what, what will happen at this stage when you have this fear? Why, why do we think like this? Why do we behave like this? And, and, and then we lapse back. I mean, even today I will lapse back, you know, instantly if there's a crisis, there are certain, you know, nerve touching issues that I can't handle. For example, my children, any betrayal coming from your close one, I still can't handle it. It just unnerves me. It takes me back into my dark hole. You know, I don't know how to transcend everything, but it's this is all part of the learning. So that's when I realized, you know, something that I was so passionate about, which is feminism. And this, what is this discourse of feminism? And that's when I realized that how feminism is an extension of humanism and liberalism and capitalism. And my work had been to criticize capitalism, to work against it. But I realized that uh, feminism it is defined within the meta frame of capitalism. The concepts of freedom, justice, equality are all within the paradigm of capitalism. So even if I challenge these notions, even, you know, um, we want to set ourselves free from them. But what we are asking is a freedom in comparison to the man. You know, if man has the right to work, we want equal wages, we want equal rights. But is man really free that we are competing with? 
man is equally marginalized, enslaved, reduced within the system. So what are we, what kind of freedom we are looking at? Is, is this really true freedom? And, and I think this has become a recent discourse now. There are some uh, amazing scholars and authors who are looking into how capitalism has damaged women. In the end, what capitalism did was it broke down family structures. It has resulted in the extreme commodification of the human being, not just women. And it has created society which is completely devoid of spiritual and moral values. And today, if you ask everyone what is success, what is happiness, what is progression, you realize it is all measured in money. We believe that money is the most powerful thing. Money is like God. We fear poverty and we fear losing money more than we truly fear God. And by that uh, definition, that capitalism is the most dominant religion of our times. And then life is what we live. Life is what we experience. And, and sexuality and spirituality is an integral part of human experience. It's a door to knowledge. It's a process of knowing yourself. And we have compartmentalized it from the rest of our being. So emotional, spiritual, sexual, mental, all these are weaved together. It's man is a complete wholesomeness. And I love Heidegger when he says that all humanistic sciences are false because they portray a definition of man which is false. So biology will only see man as a biological machine and psychiatry will only see a thinking mind and anthropology will only see its cultural and ethnic relations. So man is not a sum of all those fields. Man is much higher than that. Truth is much larger than our comprehension. And I love this uh, movie, Lucy. Have you seen this movie, Lucy? Is that the one? Um, uh, the Scarlett Johansson. I have famous, seen it, yes. Famous line from Lucy, and let me read it out for you. It yes. says, we have codified our existence to bring it down to human size, to make it comprehensible. Mm. We have created a scale so that we can forget its unfathomable scale. Amazing. And I find this amazing because man, in his attempt in defining truth, ends up manufacturing the truth. And this is an amazing quote by Foucault, because Foucault talks about manufacturing of the truth in his um, book, The History of Sexuality. He says everything is a construct. And that construction of truth, uh, the reason is that it wants to compartmentalize and isolate an issue to create a special jurisdiction so that the power structures could make a law, laws about it. And he says, all this has an agenda. It has an intention. So it's not a benign game. It's a very, very dangerous game. So if the humanistic approach is the world is what I think, what I feel, how I define it, then I don't need laws of God because I'm the center of the world and I make my own laws. So once you drop those boundaries, then you can define anything the way you want. You can manufacture any kind of truth. You see, for me, the idea was how do you bring back that woman of fitra, the, the natural woman? And you cannot do that uh, where your source of validation is capitalism and humanism. You have to go back to Adam and Eve. You have to go back to... Uh, 
how Allah has created that natural woman. You mentioned the link between feminism, capitalism, and liberalism. And I'd like if you could just unpack that in a little bit more specific detail, because my first thought is how does feminism link to capitalism? If you look at the first wave of feminist movements, it was the suffragist movement, and it was about a woman's representation into politics and um, women's um, right to vote. So on the surface, it looks like you're, you're looking for freedom and you're looking for equal rights. What it doesn't question is the whole democratic system. You are allowed to challenge the notions within the paradigm of capitalism, but uh, who feminism will not look at constitutionalism and the politics behind it. Feminism will not, uh, was not allowed to look at liberalism and what liberalism was doing, uh, the whole privatization movement, the whole um, usurping of wealth in the hands of certain set of people. So what these movements were doing, they were kind of validating democracy, they were validating constitutionalism, they were validating the whole electoral system. So instead of just being on the surface, I mean, you are saying woman versus man, but let's see if man is already free or not, which you are competing with. So you have to go deeper. You have to look what is this electoral system. You have to look into what is capitalism? What is this liberal philosophy? So it is within the paradigm of capitalism, not outside the paradigm or not challenging the paradigm. So uh, let's go back to the second wave of feminism, which was about equal wages. A man is already enslaved, trapped in an economic system where there is no autonomy. This is not a society which was pre-capitalist, which had autonomy, self-regulation. You know, it had uh, the power of the community. So instead of bringing that back within the paradigm of capitalism, you are talking about equal wages, equal opportunities, equal rights. So where does it lead you? Do you want to compete with a man? But is man really free? Man is already beaten up in the system. So in the same way, you go into the third wave where you're talking about the third wave of feminism. You're talking about uh, freedom of body. You're talking about uh, the separation of gender and uh, sex. You're talking about um, your reproductive rights. And that's where the government says, I am the father of the child. The state will take care of the child. But what does the state represent? And the whole idea of, uh, if we look back today, it didn't work. Uh, instead of women feeling more secure and single mothers being able to uh, raise children, look at the demographic figures today. Women don't want to have children anymore. Uh, it's almost like the womb has closed. You know, you have to understand how it works for a woman. The, one of the most important things for a woman to be a woman and to have children and, and for the whole process of procreation is safety and shelter. I mean, I asked one of my American friends, I said, why don't you want to have children anymore? And she, she gave me a very um, basic answer, but it tells you a lot. She said, why would I want to have children when my life is completely in debt? I'm paying bills and my, the whole life is like on lease. I have to pay this installment and this installment and this installment. Why would I want to have children? 
I, I can't afford it, number one. Number two, uh, the man that uh, whose child I want to have, is he loyal to me? He's going to run away with another woman on the internet. And I am the third generation of single mother. I don't want to have children anymore. I want to be as free as a man is. Children are looked as financial liability. And there is no desire, there's no stability within your marriage relations, or there's no backup of a family structure, you know, which can help you raise a child. If you have to raise a child, you have a demanding career where you have to work nine to five. You have a life which is in debt. You have to like run from one job to another just to meet the expenses. You put a woman in that condition because the whole idea was to bring all these women into workforce. You see, it's good for the economy. So it was good for the economy. You were able to do that. But what happened in the process, the woman that wanted to have children has disappeared. She, she thinks it's, it's too strenuous. She doesn't have the coping mechanism anymore. She doesn't have the support. And the whole idea of that, the, the government is going to be the, uh, will raise your child. It doesn't work anymore. The state as the father hasn't, hasn't delivered anything. And, and then there's another uh, detailed study about how violence on women went up as um, commodification of women and objectification of women uh, is done by capitalism. So that's another talk, because if you just go to social media and you look at how women are shamed or how women are commodified, how, I mean, we are in a time where womb is commodified. You can buy a womb, you can buy a sperm, you can buy an egg, you can have your baby in a third woman. What, and then whose child is it? Does the child belong to the woman who, uh, whose egg it is, or it is a child of the woman who paid for the whole process, or it is the child of um, the woman whose womb has been rented? So do you understand where the mess is? Because oh. once you diffuse the boundaries, then how do you make sense of this? Mm, I mean, what I'm hearing is is actually like the perfect link back to what you were saying about finding th that Adam and Eve in, in in coming back to Fitra. It's a joint effort that man needs to come back to Fitra in, in, in his Fitri manhood and woman needs to come back to Fitra in her Fitri womanhood. Would that be a correct yes, statement? Yes, exactly. I mean, Sheikh Abdul Qadir, Rahmatullah saw it coming. And I and one of the I mean, every time I read collaborative couple, you know, I am shocked. Uh, it shakes me, it gives me goosebumps because mm. what he's saying is so profound. I mean, one of the challenges for me in my classes and my lectures is to uh take away the fears, take away everything that obstructs us and let the woman of Fitra, the natural woman, emerge because it's all within us. But as she goes through this process, you're living with a man who's not a man. What happens to that woman? Because it has to be parallel, right? The, the enfolding of a woman and the enfolding of the man. And when a man is not ready, so the marriage is going to break as a woman is going to realize who she is and you know she gains force and power and realization and, and, and awareness of who she is. She just can't, she feels that she cannot continue with that marriage or a relationship or, or a family that she lives with. So it has to go parallel. And, and that's where I found the answer 
because, um, and I would like to read something from the collaborative couple where Sheikh Abdul is so, because I do not even want to rephrase it. It is so precise the way he says. He, he describes non-Edipal man. And he says, in order for a man to break free from his mother and to evolve into true man, he has to, I mean, he talks about that process. And in that process, he says, what is a non-Edipal man? He says, a non-Edipal man, the differentiated man, will place his life project above his personal life. And he says, as long as man considers his project as earning a living in this enslaved system from which he cannot escape, therefore never comes out of the family system, he's not only punishing and destroying his wife, he is destroying the human situation in its totality. As long as he remains inside this trap, he's not a man. He's not a man until his project for life, which is a higher purpose than his own family gratification. <laughs> and as long as family gratification, which is its basis in his foundation, the woman will be the victim until a man is prepared to get up and fight for something higher and nobler woman will be the victim. This implies still center to the human creature, male and female concerned with meaning and divine knowledge. So man and woman, until they don't have a higher purpose, until they don't realize who they really are as luminous divine beings, until we don't go back to our identity of who we are, and we look at ourselves, and uh, I mean, men would be slightly better, but we women, when we look at ourselves, we only see our faults. We only see our flaws. We, we have so little self-esteem. We have never seen ourselves as the light of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as the breath, as a divine breath. And, and when you see yourself as a commodity, when you see yourself as how society sees you or how men see you, you just can't, you can't evolve out of that. And then, see, Sheikh Abdul Qadir is saying something so important that this higher purpose makes you transcend your, your existence. You know, it gives you a power, a force, a kind of a bravery. Uh, to transcend from your world, your society. And, and this is something that is so lacking. Today, when I look at uh, uh, women and men, you realize men are becoming effeminate and women are becoming masculine. You know, it's, it's almost a reversal, a reversal. It's almost like a diffusion. It's like a confusion. And, and uh, you know, um, being in politics, they used to make us idealize Condoleezza Rice, you know, or Hillary Clinton. But <laughs> when I look at them, you know, are they women? I am just looking at an extension of masculinity in them. So in order to climb the ladder of success, you have to be a more of a man in a man's world. So you can't afford to be a woman. You can't bring what um, woman embodies compassion and mercy and empathy and intuition and love and nurturing. So we have to like kill that part of ourselves and be masculine and be like men and be so correct, politically correct in this capitalist world, you know, and, and that's what has hurt and damaged women. And that is also what men have lost. So 
I really don't know how to uh, how you can solve this problem because with every generation this polarity uh, is disappearing. So men are not men and women are not men. So we have this unisex, neutralized um, gender confusion. And I think one of the things that it suits capitalism so much, a generation that cannot come out of this question of who my gender is and, and whether it's in my head or it's in my body, it just breaks you down, you know, because every day you encounter the system. And once you're caught in this this sense of finding who you are and it's all based on confusions and false notions and distortions i don't think that society can stand up to capitalism or any system or can bring a kind of a rebellious movement and and can be pivotal in change it's the best way of breaking down a society you have to hate human species in order to destroy them from within like this but it's also it's a it's a removal of any acknowledgement of divinity, right? Of course. It's, it's, it's like a challenge. I define what my gender is. God will not give me gender. I mean, there's no God in the first place, okay? So we are already looking at a generation that has accepted this fact, majority of them, um, even if they believe that there's a God, it's so abstract and so um, uh, distant from how do they live the fear of Allah and the man is being observed is not there. So I could choose my gender, but you know, there was this recent case in Barcelona where this uh, man says that, you know, it's not about gender anymore. I choose my own species and I don't think I'm a human being. I'm a fish. So he went out and had a surgery and he had this silicon wing, uh, um, you know, fins and says that I am a, I'm a fish. <laughs> so where do you draw a line there, you know? So it's all, see, it's it's all mental. Uh, the whole idea is what is happening is rationalization of everything. Um, you live in your heads and everything is um, coming from your head. It's your mental identity. And this is what uh, Heidegger wants us about. It's so dangerous. You are attributing through rational capacity, man can define himself, man can define God, man can define truth, and this is false, and this is dangerous, and this will destroy humanity, and this is what has happened to us. Mm. So how does one start getting out of the head and into feeling? Well, uh, you have to go back to the heart. You know, one of the things that happened in my journey was this... Um, encounter with Mulana Rumi's teachings. I remember I picked up Masnavi and I asked Mulana Rumi and I said, give me a clue of what it is. And I randomly opened and I think it was Masnavi volume four. And I come across this quote, uh, which says, um, sell your cleverness and buy bewilderment because cleverness is opinion and bewilderment is pure vision. And the word in Persian is mushahida, is witnessing. And I remember I went back to Sheikh Omar and I said, you have to tell me what this is. And I think we had a year of classes on Mulana Rumi to understand what the heart is, what is haira, what is bewilderment, what is this domain of the heart that the Sufis talk about. You can transcend space, time, you can understand reality. And it takes you back to Quran, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that I live in the heavens or I live in the heart of a moment. 
and um, he talks about firasat and the basira uh, of people who are close to allah that how you know you can understand truth only through the heart so that was like an amazing discovery for me that how sufism was and the sawf was preserver of the knowledge of the heart there are two things that are really out of our control no matter how rational we try to be it's love and fear in fear you can't rationalize and in love you can't rationalize and that's where you know your life is disrupted in both of these um, experiences and fear and love i realized that you know according to the sufi teachings are the domain of the heart and and the savuf you know what i realized was not following the heart because if your heart is full of fears and is sick then you are it's not going to take you anywhere what you have to do is learn to manage the heart and in managing the heart you manage fear and love and as you go deeper you it's through the heart that you understand who you are as a human being it's, it's through the heart that you understand what is your relationship with allah subhanahu wa taala it's through your heart that you realize what your fitra is it's the inward journey through the heart that i realize what a woman really means and there's no other way because heart dominates the the head once you have a fear or you have love then the head starts creating narratives starts creating stories and then then we start living in our head because behind that there is a fear or there's a love or there's a kind of a, you know some other factor coming from the heart but it's all back to the heart and this cognition of the heart is some is is, is something like a miracle that i found because because when i look through the pages of masnavi every second page mentioned the word aql and aql in my language and in persian and arabic the, for the last 100 years has been translated as um, as cognition as intellect and and i and i and i with every explanation that mulana rumi was giving it wasn't about the head at all so i didn't know what to do so i went back to quran and i i did a quran search of all the words aql the way it has been used in quran and it took me to the ayat in the quran where allah says i've given eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts for for understanding and the word was kulube yakilun meaning the aql of the kalb and that was like mind blowing for me so aql from the heart means cognition of the heart so aql is not intellect as all the english translations of bulana rumi are describing head 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 because head is taking me back to my prisons head takes me back to my fixations my obsessions my needs it's not liberating me it's not giving me a profound understanding of who i am what my truth is and that's where i realized and then when i went back to all the ayats of aql the way allah subhanahu wa taala is using it's so it's connected with the kalb with the heart and that's when i realized that oh my god this is like uh, this is not how we've been taught aql is the 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 literal meaning of aql is understanding and allah is using is repeatedly with the heart mm. so this brings us back to sheikh darqawi and ibn arabi and mulana rumi and shams tabriz and sheikh abdul qadir asufi things that they've been saying again and again the sawuf is about management of the heart it's about uh, learning tawakkul 
taqwa, you know, shukr and all these attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the virtues. And they all are, you know, coming from the heart. You cannot learn love from your head because you have to love it from your heart. You cannot be learn gratitude with your head. It has to come from the heart. The taqwa, the fear of Allah comes from the heart. And when you shut down the heart and you believe that there is absolutely no divinity, there's no meaning in everything except the way man has defined truth, God and existence in the last 100 years, then you have a generation, including my own generation, which is so confused. We are not bad people. We are just so confused that we don't know what is right from wrong. We just don't know uh, what is moral and amoral anymore. We just don't know who we are anymore. And we have no clue of finding out how do we reach our true selves. Mm, wow. And then could you say that when you shut out the heart and you shut out love, does fear increase i don't know i'm i'm look when you love and you became uh, aware of love and that's where um i think the teachings of ibn arabi are so amazing let me explain you the way i understand how it occurred to me because ibn arabi in his uh fasus al-hikam quotes a beautiful hadith on the chapter of uh Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and and he says this hadith is so important. He says that the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam says that I was made to love woman, perfume, and salat. And the word Ibn Arabi says the line is that Allah made me love women. He did not say I love women, but Allah made me love women. So. This takes us back, and Ibn Arabi takes us back to man and woman. So Allah creates Eve from the rib of Adam. So they are not two separate beings that come together. They are the same thing that were split into two. Mm. See, Adam and Eve were one, and Allah split them into two. Now this actually demolishes all the definitions of feminism that man is was created first and woman was created uh, second so who's superior who's not and the whole comparison but this is this is the savuf i'm not talking about feminism or politics or whatever just tap into this what uh, ibn arabi is saying that they are not two separate things that come together they are the same thing that was split into two because they were one and split into two so the essence is their longing and yearning for each other. He yearned for her because he's longing for the thing that was part of himself. And she yearns for him because it's a long, longing for a thing that is her home. This is something so beautiful, profound, and the ultimate romantic thing I've ever <laughs> read on Adam and Eve. So then he says that love is a relationship of wholeness because the, the, the love of man, you see, has been a love of man and woman and the union of man and woman has been so trivialized and the sacredness has been taken away. But let's go back to what Ibn Arabi says, because he says when a man loves a woman, he's not just loving the outward form of the woman, but also the inward Part, which is the ruh, 
and Ru is part of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So she yearns and loves you and you yearn and love her and they both are witnessing Allah in each other. See, so it's an act of recognition. It's an act of worshipping. It's an act of witnessing Allah in each other. And this is so profound and beautiful and sacred. So in loving each other, the cause and the source of this love is not mutual relationship, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the center of in between the love of man and woman. But if you take Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala away from this equation, then that relationship becomes self-gratification. You, you start having um, uh, expectations from your partner. Your, your relationship becomes needy, clingy, obsessive, you know, uh, based on appetite, based on self-gratification, self-indulgence. And, and it's, not, it's, not, it's not divine anymore. Because when you love a man, you're loving the source of love, which is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you don't love the man or a woman. For example, a man loves a woman. You do not love woman on account of herself, but you love the woman on account of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When you look at her, you see the face of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In her loving you, you are being loved by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I had never come across uh, such an explanation. Wow, it's a different, it's a different, uh, it's a it's a completely different perspective as well on life. Yes, because you see, then it is not about dunya. What Ibn Arabi also says is that he's saying that the prophet says that in loving woman you see the perfection of the witnessing of Allah. See. Who, who, who explains like this? And he has elevated women like no other sheikh I've ever seen has done that. So, and then he says this, this love between man and woman is the foundation of knowledge. Everything in existence is built upon this event. The key to this love is that you're capable of transcending the form and enter the source of love. Now you go back to the definition or understanding of sexuality. And this is not in the realm of sensory anymore but in the realm of meaning, not outward manifestation of love in body, but the inward meaning of love in rue and heart. This is not body loving the body. It's, it's also rue loving the rue. It's the heart loving the heart where the sensory disappears and the meaning appears. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, is the center and the source of all this love. And this is, this is, this is just so, this was like, you know, something so profound. It just changes the whole um, way of looking at man and at your marriage and, and the way you look at uh, love, because it, it's, it's just so high. It's just so beautiful. And even Sheikh Abdul Qadir in the collaborative couple touched upon this. He says, man cannot understand life until uh, the woman is with him because woman is, like an experience of life. You know, we are very, um, he says the woman doesn't fall into the dialectic analysis <laughs> because we are so intuitional and we are so different from men. So Sheikh Abdul Qadir defines it so beautifully that woman is somebody who's in touch with the sound of the water and is about beauty and she's about compassion and she brings this kind of experience to the man and she nurtures him with her love and compassion. And, and it's almost like rebuilding man again and again. 
So there's a role of man in the in the life of a woman, and there's a role of woman in the life of a man. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I know it's uh, it's just so different from how we think. I mean, through the heart, you 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 reach to the source of love. You reach to the source of gratitude. Any virtue you pick upon, it it ends up on Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, and then you realize that we have bought such a shallow definition of ourselves and of our lives and of our uh, of the way we look at our existence we are we're completely like you know uh, indoctrinated impaired we are impaired and 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 there's no other way to heal society right now except going back to the heart and and starting from the scratch how sufis understand love and fear and and the whole obsession of you know micromanaging your life you know abandonment of the affairs to Allah Subhanahu wa taala that is missing that's what we have to relearn so i mean you've mentioned it now twice at this discourse by um Sheikh Abdul Qadir the collaborative couple what is the collaborative couple what does it mean i think i would like to go back to what Sheikh Abdul Qadir says and let me just go to Okay, he talks about further about non-edipal man, and he says this non-edipal man will dwell in the growth of the woman's feeling life. This is a non-projective being present in her seeing, touching, and hearing centers. A sense of deep seeing and touching and hearing, whose expression is ascetic, in beauty both inward and outwardly, and compassion. This is the power and light and force of a woman, without which man cannot reach to his higher aspiration. In seeing the light on the water, in hearing the song of the bird, it's itself transcendent, luminous being. And without it, man cannot understand life. He will reinvent an atom bomb and not have any qualms. He will drop it, and not another man will say a word. But if he was with the woman, she would say, "If you make this bomb, what will happen to the child in my womb?" So what Sheikh Abdul Qadir is really saying is, the collaborative couple is where the two people who come together collaborate, they nurture, they nourish each other by their higher selves, and this can only happen if you are able to understand the higher self within yourself, and in order for the woman. the natural fitra woman to emerge you need a man who is willing to give her that space a man who's grown up a man who's not still you know dwindling in his uh, adolescence years that's what has happened we men are not men anymore men are not mature emotionally men are not ready men are grown up children so shikha dukan says these men need a separation from their mothers and stop asking their wives to be their mothers so the whole collab the idea of collaborative couple is a realization who you are your higher self how you're a spiritual luminous being and nourishing the same thing in the other is it takes you back to the ayat of uh, uh, spiritual man will have spiritual women so the whole idea the perfect union is between two spiritual beings and that again takes us back to the idea of how allah is in the center gives meaning to this union and relationship between man and woman now there's one further um conundrum one could say or or, or contradiction in the 
Jacob Ducada writes this book, The Collaborative Couple, which at first sight I'm seeing man and woman. And then later in the article, in the discourse, he talks about the polygamous home situation. And now for me, I find that a little bit confusing in what is the link between the couple and a multi-wife home or, or, or family situation. That's because, you see, uh, I think there are two things in there that polygamy, number one, is looked down upon. And somehow it is connected with the feminist movement of how uh, this is usurping the right of one woman and giving it to the other. And secondly, it goes back to how men are also behaving. You see, most of the cases in the Muslim countries are they, they have the second marriage and they hide it. And, and somehow um, the rights of the first woman is affected by um, the bringing of the second woman or the rights of the second woman are affected because uh, sometimes the marriages are not disclosed. They're kept secret and they don't have the, the same right. And, and they don't even have that kind of acknowledgement. So I think the, the, the concept of... Um, Polygamy is not that is what is in question. It is how men and women are practicing it. But I, I think uh, you have to understand the family structure in Islam and, and how it used to be. Let's uh, go back to Medina. You have to, have to understand what is the domain of a woman because it's not just polygamy we're talking about. We're talking about all the women in your family, your mother, your wife, and your daughters. So the whole idea is that the women are su supposed to stay in the home and, and our home is the domain of the woman and man's domain is this outside there. But, you know, one of the shocking things were when you go back to the times of Medina, and I realized that the first souk that Prophet created was ran by a woman. And it were the women who were the traders, the women who were selling in that market. Because the local economy of Medina, um, there was so much contribution from women because men were on jihad and fighting battles. So there was a kind of a sustenance, uh, sustaining of the economy coming from the women. Now, going back to... Uh, uh, Khatija Razlatala Anho, who was a trader, uh, and she was a partner of Prophet Muhammad And then we have Hazrat Aisha Razlatala Anho. Uh, she was a woman scholar, probably the first woman scholar, which has transmitted thousands of hadiths. So we are not looking at ordinary women. We are not looking at a woman, you know, multiple wives or women, daughters, mothers captured in a house and they are supposed to do, uh, you know, remain in the house, which is what uh, they, in most of the conservative societies, it's expected. So we are looking at women who have great contributions in the movement of Islam at that time. And there was a kind of a different model. Uh, I don't know whether you understand the word muhalla. No. Muhalla is uh, all the houses, like, you know, you had this courtyard kind of living and all the neighborhoods had these muhallas. I think the literal word would be neighborhood. And muhallas in, let's take an example of India and Pakistan, subcontinent. So muhallas were according to the guilds. So the people who worked in the same profession almost lived in the same neighborhood. And they had this uh, partnership and combined uh, way of doing trading or whatever profession they were. And then if you look deeper, you realize there was a collaboration among the women. Mm. The women came together. There were groups of women who helped. It was like a shared 
common infrastructure and shared production coming from women. And, and this is what was also what Islam was about. So instead of um, women just trapped into housewife role and, and kitchen, we realized that women shared and they were producing commodities and they were selling commodities and there was a kind of bonding with, with women. It's, it's very different from the culture that we have today. You versus me and the competing of women with each other. There was a kind of a collaboration on a professional level on, on helping each other as a woman. I was looking into it. That's what I realized that this whole other way of looking into shared spaces, shared work, shared relationships, shared marriages, you know, where your question, I come back to your question, which is so different of how we look into it. But remember, this polygamy or this professional collaboration, this shared community of women, which really loved and helped each other, that family existed in, in a whole set of a family system. And that family system existed in a mohalla and that mohalla existed in a trading system, in an economy. So all that you know, system, the way the cities were built, the way the economies were built, where the markets were, the, uh, the way the guilds is, I'm almost talking about guilds on a personal level. These women were like a guild together, collaborated, competed, but you know, there was, there's a kind of solidarity there. There's a kind of cooperation. There's a kind of collaboration, which we don't have. So now you, uh, because everything has collapsed, so in order to build that kind of family structure where you versus me, jealousy versus jealousy, this is mine and this is not mine, you have to actually reorganize the society. And I think one of the things that Ibn Khaldun says, it's so beautiful that he says, in order to bring justice and development in your outward, you have to have these attributes in your inward. When collectively, the inward of a society has love and compassion and true brotherhood for each other. That's when the asabia comes. So asabia has to start within your heart, you know, genuinely uh, loving the same thing that you love for yourself. He says you may have development outside, but you will never have that collective force of compassion, solidarity, and love until the society has the hearts that believe in that. So it's so beautiful that how the inward and the outward manifest in each other. You can't have an outward without an inward. So it takes you back to the heart who we are. It takes you back to how you cultivate the heart, how you truly learn to love somebody. And in loving somebody, in loving your husband or loving uh, your children and loving your, your, your family, you love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You are loving Allah through them. I mean, every question, every problem of the contemporary world will take you back to Tasawwuf. It will give you the interpretation, the understanding of Quran and Hadith and, and, and the Amal of Medina in, in such a profound state. And that's what needs to be uh, preserved. That's what needs to be revisited. We have to go back to Tasawwuf. And Tasawwuf will naturally take us back to our fitrah. Of course, and, and, and that's where, um, I think that's where uh, true healing will start. Do you know about Gulbadan Begum? No. I only just found out about her. Now, she was the daughter of Babur, 
she lived into, I think, her late 80s. And when she died, Shah Jahan was 14. So she was the link between five of the great Mughal emperors. And she was like the key figure in the, yeah. Mughal, in the Mughal court. There's a lady called Ira Mukhoti, and she wrote a book on the harem of the Mughal Empire. And basically, mm. from a woman's perspective, and really just redefining it, because the, the British came in, and they changed the whole idea of the harem into this kind of perverse sexual fantasy, when the reality of it was it was like an epic school. Yeah, harems were like universities. And, and, and the whole idea that uh, sensuality is not part of Islam, I don't understand that at all. It's just that Islam is very clear about what is private and what is public. But where is sensuality condemned? I mean, look into 1001 Arabian Nights. It's so amazing, the whole <laughs> world of sensuality. And it's all symbolic. They're metaphors, you know. Uh, and uh, and there are ways of understanding uh, ex uh, life and existence, your sensual reality, your the world of sensuousness, and it, it it is knowledge. But that's not the only thing, you know. There's a meaning of everything, and 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 there's a world of sensuousness, and there's a world of meaning, and how they're connected, how they are, they fold into doors of knowledge. Each one of them. Yes, I mean, I I would love to look into this uh, uh, harem, and you're talking about. A woman, I and mean, she must have had a very long life to see so be part of so many emperors' uh, life. She died during Akbar's reign, so Jahangir was still like maybe in his thirties, and Shah Jahan was a teenager. So she was she was like the, the 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 big daddy. She will have known her father. She spent her youth alongside her brother. You know, she was the favorite auntie of her nephew. She was the link. So, I mean, for Shah Jahan, who built the Taj Mahal, to be a 14-year-old prince who's going to become the emperor, to, have, to know the first-hand story through the memory of your great-great-aunt, that is, that is absolutely like... <sighs> yes, it is. And I would love to read more about her. It's very intriguing. Perhaps, you know, we can also at some other time, because it needs a lot of time to look into subcontinent and the whole idea of how a woman and her sexuality was before the social purity movement entered subcontinent and the defining point was colonization. And in colonization, how we were engineered into the Victorian mindset. See, there is a, a very important thing to understand how Islam was changed under British Raj. Yeah. Oh. And what was the movement of Protestantism and the Christianization of Islam and the impact on women. So it's, uh, and it's worth looking into and uh, it's worth understanding how, you know, this woman that you're talking about the spiritual capacity of women to advise and counsel the emperors. The woman was cherished and celebrated and glorified and respected to what women became. 
under the the this new change of clericalism you see we developed into a clerical society very much like the priesthoods and the systematic way of bringing western values and changing the institutions of islam and sharia as a engineered process of british raj i mean this is worth exploring and understanding and i would encourage you to look into subcontinent more look into the tawaifs this is a very controversial subject who tawaifs were what was their connection with the uh, mutiny why were tawaifs changed into prostitutes from cultural ambassadors of art literature poetry and dance and music how did they become prostitutes it's 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 almost like a hidden story but it tells you so much about how we were colonized how we were destroyed how our religion was distorted how our culture was destroyed why do we live with this shame of colonialism you know where is this inferiority come and we still have it you know we still haven't come out of it we look at ourselves how a western man sees us you know the whole babu culture was there how a bourgeois class was created how that facilitated the colonization and there's so many lessons there and and for a women how the victorian mindset puritan movement destroyed the subcontinent it's a tragedy if you go deeper into it you realize who we were and why were we such glorious empires the ottoman empire the andalusian empire the the mughal empire and how we lost it all how systematically we were destroyed i mean other than destroying our guilds and privatizing our okafs and bringing a paper currency to legal legislation you know outwardly this was happening but internally there was lot more things were happening and how we were destroyed from within and we haven't recovered from that yet thank you for listening to this week's episode it's interesting because before i recorded this episode i had no idea where this conversation was going to go and i think the way that the conversation transpired did justice to the topic by looking at a number of its different facets but also opening a number of further questions in my mind that i will strive to answer in future episodes so it definitely stirred my curiosity in the episode description i've added a number of links including to dr humaira's book to her women and power online course to the discourse by sheikh abdul qader the collaborative couple and to ira mukhoti's book on the mughal harem called daughters of the sun stay tuned and i'll be back soon with another episode thank you